Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. June 6, 2021, episode 196, Floor to Ceiling. Hello everyone and welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England and I'm happy you stopped by. It's been a bit since we had the last episode, but we've been keeping busy around here. And yes, beekeeping is in that mix, because that's the way it goes when you have bees from floor to ceiling in your colonies. It's been a boom year here in central New Jersey, and even though the bounty of spring is tapering off as we move to summer, the nectar flow continues on, and our bees are making honey aplenty out in the yard. We are somewhat coming out of the era of COVID in central New Jersey, and I anticipate that as far as beekeeping goes, the era of the Zoom meetings will probably carry on for a stretch, but it sure will be nice to start meeting in person again, and it feels like the possibility is right around the corner. Certainly, and of course, we have the Eastern Apiculture Society coming up, their show in Kentucky. I'm happy for them that things are freeing up and that it looks like all of their hard work to carry on with the mission to have a show this summer will pay off for them. And if we remember in Kentucky, not up here in the Northeast where it was originally supposed to be. I'm looking forward to taking in the conference, even if it's the shorter few days this year. There's nothing like a meeting of beekeepers to help you feel connected to the craft. And I'm equally happy to have the chance to catch up with a couple beekeeping friends. You know, if you haven't considered the conference and you're new to beekeeping, it might be maybe kind of a reach to head to Kentucky or something, but, you know, it's a rich and rewarding experience, and you can still sign up for a slot at easternapiculture.org. Plenty of time to make arrangements for the August event, and, you know, what a good way to... Get yourself out and amongst the folks. I think it's time to get to business and give a glimpse of what we have in store for this episode, so let me get on focus. Roundtable number one, a new gadget for beekeeping. I'll tell you the Frankenstein-esque rig someone has ingeniously devised for cleaning honey supers out. Roundtable number two, bees and microplastics. Roundtable 3, Mexico is on track to ban glyphosate. Say goodbye to Roundup south of the border. Roundtable number 4, the story of a swarm and breaking out the swarm vacuum. Roundtable number 5, gotta go to mow. Using a mechanical mower in the bee yard. There's one topic for this go-round, a recipe for homemade beeswax-based sunscreen. To cap off the episode, I have a lot of odds and ends to share in the local hive report, and I have a short aside to tack on at the end a recording of Bob Kloss and I doing an after-action report after working bees in our apiary, my apiary, a little while ago. That's a lot of talk, so what do you say we get to it? Let's go to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one. I call this one Shake, Shake, Shake. There's a new gadget in town, it's commonly being called a bee shaker, which could confuse matters as there is a type of box used to shake bees into to find a queen, but in my mind this one does earn the label. 
What is it, you ask? It's a jury-rigged device that marries a frame grip with a jigsaw. What do you use it for, you ask? You use it to shake the bees off when you're taking honey for honey production. How does it work, you ask? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if you could see the videos of this, you, you know what? It works pretty darn well. Let me stop being cheeky and get a little serious about this. So I've seen the tool in the videos that seems to have come out of Asia as they have foreign symbols all over all the videos. I can't read them, so I have no idea what they're saying when they're looking to sell these devices, I'm guessing. The utility of it is pretty evident, though. And honestly, for a commercial person, if they employ any technique of trying to remove bees off of a frame individually as they swap frames from one box to another, it's really quite effective. The sudden burst of movement and the motion created by the tool results in the bees shedding off the frame just like falling water. To describe the device is to say, I really feel like someone took a jigsaw and affixed a bar inside the bit and the bar comes down to two clamps that hold the frame grip. The frame grip is the jaws-like squeeze thing that opens up and clamps down with the spring on the top sides of your top bar. When this thing is clamped to the frame, you could use the handhold of the jig tool to pull and dislodge the frame. You push a button to engage the tool and the shaking motion immediately oscillates and vibrates the clamped frame in such a rapid motion that it sheds the bees and they seem to fall straight down into the hive, no flying. There's one final modification of the tool that entails automation of the operation of the frame grip. They have ingenious, ingenious, yeah, easy for you to say, ingeniously <laughs> rigged something akin to a bicycle brake lever and a brake line that goes down to the frame grip and it's situated in the grasp of the frame jig tool. So in this manner, when you pick up the frame jig tool, you can use your fingers to squeeze the lever open and close the frame jig and operate the tool all at the same time. This belays the question, do you need one of these? Hmm. Let's think about its utility. No chemicals, no escape board, no harm to the bees, no blower, no waiting around. So yeah. Honestly, I could see some people gravitating to this thing. Like every other electric tool that we employ in the bee yard, it requires power. Wah, wah, wah. In the video clip that I watched, the device hooked to a car battery. These are apparently becoming maybe a thing, because over the past three months, I've seen different takes on the design crop up here and there. And I even received an email recently from a manufacturer that encouraged me to take advantage of a sale on this revolutionary device that's going to change the honey production industry. On the other side of this, I wanted to talk about these frame grips. I've talked about them in the past. I don't particularly care for them. I think they're awkward. But I did want to call out something called the mule grip. At the core of that other device is the actual grip device. I still have reservations about these tools in regular use. 
But if you want to try one of these, this mule grip thing, it's the device to try. I think it's finally figured out the utility of the purpose and honed in on all the elements in an optimal state kind of way based on what I've seen. To describe the mule grip tool, the jaws of the tool, very smart. There's a small notch, a large notch, and a design that handles both plastic frames and wooden frames interchangeably by the way the notches are designed in the actual jaws of the grip. It's a simple but effective locking knob employed to hold it in place. That was one of the problems with the original design. The grips themselves seem to look comfortable. And I would think that if you're really one who struggles with the extraction process of getting a frame up out of the box, maybe this tool will help you. The problem for me is when you have the frame up out of the box in the actual grip, it seems really kind of awkward to me on how to turn the frame to do something with it, especially if it's really heavy. Now with the mule grip, it can lock on and hopefully it's not so far away from the top of the frame that the balance is right. And because it locks on, you can actually use your other hand to maybe hold the end of the frame. I don't know. The problem for me is when you have it up out of the box, it seems awkward to me to turn the frame to do something, especially if that frame is heavy. Now, in fairness, the frame grip that I bought a long time ago was a first-generation device, and perhaps this one would change my mind. But even as a gadget guy, I'm not sure I want to shell out $40 plus shipping to learn if this device is going to suit my needs. I will say that there is something about the tactical feeling of drawing out a frame by hand. You feel the resistance, and you come to know if there's bees against bees, and there's a little bit of drag, and you're more careful to pull that frame or put it back and find that extra space required. Crushing bees when extracting frames is probably one of the biggest mistakes a new beekeeper makes. Crushed bees release chemicals, and it really incites the bees to alarm. If you ask me why new beekeepers often report that their hives are nasty, it's this single element. They're doing things in their inspection because they're clumsy and not tuned into it that are crushing bees and the bees get pissed off because of it. If you extract the bees cleanly, less problems. I would go as far as saying take your frames and put them in a quiet box, less problems. Use cautions when putting boxes down, less problems. Taking your time to clear the bees. You know, coming back to the grip, I wonder if the practice of pulling the frame out with it would take away that tactical acumen that you have that you can't get when you're holding on to the frames with your fingers. Your fingers are the grip and you could feel everything. Now, if you search on the web, for the mule-grip tool, you'll see links to it from various vendors. It's for sale all over the place. As to the Shake 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 tool, I'll have a few links in the show notes if you want to see it, but be cautious if you decide to go there. I think the tool's literally some low-cost jigsaw with a scabbed-on frame grip 
And the ones that I saw for sale are somewhere like $300, which is ludicrous. I would speculate that if you really wanted to make this thing, you could probably do it for under 100 bucks or less if you were handy. So check out the show notes if you want to see this thing in action. Roundtable number two, I call this one Hitchhiker. Microplastics on bees. I must admit, I'm not overly tuned into this topic, but I see it popping up in some context or another, and now it has intersects with honeybees, so I start to pay attention to it. The whole microplastics thing. I know for, you know, my naive sense, it was put in shampoos and things like that, and people were trying to get it banned. I don't know, presumably because it's around in the environment forever. Researchers have documented that honeybees have been now noted to be carriers of microplastics. In an article from National Geographic, it spoke how scientists have a new way to monitor airborne plastics, thanks to the bees. I guess it's not much of a leap to consider that microplastic bits would be suitable for attraction to bees as they navigate this world. To understand why it matters, you have to do what I did and finally go take a moment to baseline on what this is all about. In the world, there are two categories of microplastics, primary and secondary. Primary microplastics are tiny particles used in commercial applications. Back to my example a moment ago, think of cosmetics, the ingredient in your moisturizer that exfoliates your skin or the body in the shampoo that used to scrub your scalp might be a microplastic. Microplastics are not just the man-made kind, but as plastic degrades, or it's abraded like any other material, it sheds particles. And the nylon we have in our clothing, and tarps, and plastic bags, you name it, all shear off and enter our environment. Secondary microplastics are particles that result in the breakdown of larger plastic items. Most notoriety of this type comes from the plastic garbage collections in the ocean. The sun, the waves, and other items cause water bottles and plastic debris to break down and degrade, causing the plastic to disperse. And if you think about it, the next time you go back to the beach, some of that sand may not be glass crystals. It could very well be secondary microplastics. Coming back to the bees, scientists have been studying this problem and discovered that honeybees, with the hairy surface that offers up a static charge under certain conditions, are the perfect conduit to attract microparticles. And as such, a publication out of Denmark indicated that samples they have been taking showed that 13 different synthetic polymers were found in one study. The work was reported in a study titled Honeybees as Active Samplers for Microplastics and demonstrates one of the first known ways that scientists can possibly study the microparticles that are accumulated on both the ground and in the air. So what understandings might this lean toward? For one thing, researchers are trying to understand how microplastics are dispersed. The Denmark researchers sampled bees from colonies within an urban environment 
and also a rural area outside of the city. The city bees were found to have more particles, but it was equally interesting to learn that the rural bees were not that far behind, and it seems like the disbursement of the microplastics is occurring over larger areas than they had considered. It seems the quote-unquote country is not immune to higher concentrations given wind dispersion. In the article, there was a short aside about the impacts of plastics on the actual pollinators. It suggests that since in the environment, insects are learning to adapt and use the materials. I think that it's fairly evident if you watch insects over time, and of course you can see birds flying away with plastic shards to build into their nests. That's evidence of everyday, of everyday uses. They postulated that it's possible that the honeybees and other insects are ingesting the microplastics, and I bet we are too, and that it could feasibly have some impact on the gut biome and other aspects of their bee biology. Now, we humans are not immune to that either, as these microparticles of polyester and PVC and other things are floating around in the ether as dust particles on a routine basis. Welcome to the modern miracles of science, I suppose, and another reminder that we humans are physically impacting our world. No surprise. Honeybees and microplastics, I found this kind of interesting, and there will be some links to the documentation in the show notes. Roundtable number three, I call this one, Go Away Glyphosate. It's about Mexico banning glyphosate in the future. It's been a while since we've talked about Monsanto's glyphosate on the program, and I think we left it with a placeholder that was a watch on how governments would proceed with the sentiment that glyphosate is showing signs of being problematic for health. Phase-outs are scheduled, or outright bans, are in place in Thailand and Germany, and now Mexico is joining the list. Mexico recently announced that they are planning to phase out use of all glyphosate known in the U.S. as Roundup by 2024. Monsanto and the U.S. government have been in talks with Mexico about this move, as it signals a shift in policy towards the product that has been mounting in Mexico after they moved to ban the import of the product earlier in 2019 in some ways. I think the U.S., it's evident that there's visible activity and awareness coming. It always seems that California leads the charge and is at the forefront of environmental issues, but here in New Jersey, we're seeing ads on TV that are suggesting that Roundup can cause health issues, and it should be evident that there have been some visible, successful lawsuits against the product in the United States. I start to wonder... Once more, where this leads is Monsanto Roundup-ready crops are fairly wide-reaching, and given how much they are in our food ecosystem, my ham-handed way of thinking about this is that if glyphosate is eventually phased out, it could be as significant as getting away from DDT, like we did in the 60s. For some of our younger listeners who might not be familiar with DDT, the product was developed in the 40s, used extensively through to the 1970s for mosquito control, among other things. After awareness to its significant impacts, 
It was mostly banned in the early 1970s with a full ban coming in the late 1980s. At the time, it was widely used, and when it was cut off, it was perceived as generally impactful change. And perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself, but if glyphosate would go down the same road, one could imagine the worldwide crop production methods would have to change significantly. As to bees, there are mixed reservations about glyphosate and its impact on the physical well-being of honeybees and other pollinators. Certainly, from a functional standpoint, the whole kill every weed so it does not compete with the crop approach has not worked well for the bees. <laughs> and that the underlying vegetative materials are just completely wiped out in Roundup sprayed fields. And certainly that could result in a reversal of diverse food supply for the bees. Over time, we have heard reports the agrochemical Industries were on the forefront of introducing the next wave of products, but to my knowledge, really nothing of merit has surfaced on that viewpoint. Will glyphosate go away? To me, the California marketplace is typically an indicator of things to come, and they seem to have glyphosate in their crosshairs. My expectation is in the next decade, Roundup will go by the wayside. It's pure speculation on my part. Before I leave the topic, a quick Kevin moment. Our backyard has the smell of vinegar in the air again. Two years ago, I spent some time cleaning out the garage, and I found these bottles of Roundup in the garden bin that was there from when my in-laws owned the house. I let Sharon know it was there. I was planning to dispose of it, but suggested she might want to try Roundup on the brick patio we have out back. Both of us honestly just wanted to know how effective it was because we weren't users of the product. We chose a patch about 10 by 15 and sprayed it over the bricks. In another area, Sharon literally got on her hands and knees and pulled out the weeds, errant grass, dandelions, other plants, and things growing in the cracks. Two weeks later, the picked area all reestablished itself. The Roundup area stayed weed-free for a month or more. So there is that. I would suggest that if you use it directly, it really is an effective product. But at what cost? It is established now that it's a likely, air quotes, carcinogenic. And to that end, while it works, we simply just don't want to use it. And I'm scared to death of the neighbors next to us who are spraying Roundup all over the entire fields. And all the water runoff, as I've talked about in the past, goes through our property. So this year, Sharon loaded up a pump sprayer with a dollar bottle gallon bottle of white vinegar from ShopRite and bathed the same area. It killed everything as effectively as the Roundup. Killed it. All turned brown and whittled in one day. And it's not shown any signs of growing back. Yes, the whole backyard smelled of vinegar for a day or two, but to me the trade-off of not spraying methyl ethyl death, my tongue-in-cheek label for all these chemical concoctions, was worth the short odiferous smell on our senses while walking from back door to the garage. Simple, regular, good old white vinegar. Good old ShopRite brand. End of Kevin moment. So glyphosate banned 2024 in Mexico. You have to wonder where the United States will end up with this, and we'll keep an eye on it. Roundtable number four. Call this one Vroom Vroom. 
It's about using a swarm bee capture vacuum. It's been a swarm season to remember in 2021. If you had any inkling of trying to lure some swarms into a trap, all you have to do is set a vessel out with some swarm commander or old comb, and I think you stood an 80% chance this season of a swarm moving in. That's probably a gross overstatement, but I was three for three this year, and I moved the bees out of the magical breezeway box and into another active colony, and they're out there scouting the thing again as we speak. Must be apparently prime real estate or something. I don't know what it is about that box. Equally impressive have been the swarm cells. Five swarms have found their way back here. And last week I did something that has been on the to-do list for quite some time. I actually used my BVAC to suck up some errant bees. A local homeowner called about a swarm on a grapevine in their backyard, and I brought over one of my double six-frame poly setups to do the load-in. Kevin moment. Having these boxes for that purpose is such an added bonus. They really make a great piece to house a swarm. The polystyrene six-frame boxes are light, easy to close, pleasure to work with for this purpose. It's an unknown dynamic that would come to pass that I've used them three, three, four times so far, and they've really worked well. And honestly, I think I'm just going to keep one of these stacks in reserve every spring for this particular purpose. They also make a really great hive to start a colony's journey out in, as the captured swarm seems to do really well at drawing out wax foundation in those hives, which... I think is an added bonus, and I think it has to do with the warmth that they can maintain in the polystyrene environment. End of Kevin moment. I shook the bees from that grapevine swarm into the box, and as is customary, a large contingent continued to move back to the post where it came from. Then you get into that game of shake, wait, shake, wait, shake, wait, and in time, if you're lucky, you get the queen and the critical mass into the vessel, and then the errant bees detect the scenting bees and come over to their own accord. I did something unusual on this job. I left. It was late in the afternoon when the bees moved into the hive boxes, and after putzing around with the shake and wage, stubborn bees were going back to the post. I decided, you know what, let the chemicals of the hive work. I could see the bees on the hive lid scenting, and I know that if left to their devices, eventually most of those stubborn bees would get wind of those smells and just come over to the box. Looking at the sun, it was near the tops of the trees on the horizon, and I figured once it got a little lower in the sky and darkness started to settle in, bees would settle down and come over from that post to the box at dusk. So I left. I went home, had dinner, prepped a spot to put the bees in upon my return. I went back as dusk was settling on the night, and for the most part, the strategy worked. 95, 98% of the bees did indeed go over to the box. And there were only a small percentage of bees flying around. Maybe those were bees that came out of the box and were starting to orient. There was a couple dozen bees on the post. I had my vacuum with me, and I fired it up, and I vacuumed all the strays off. Some on the post, others landing on the box, 
And after about 20 minutes, I had just about every bee there. During the process, I made idle talk with the homeowners and discovered that the wife had a keen interest for becoming a beekeeper, and she's been doing a lot of research on the topic for the past few months now. I powered the vacuum with my old trusty bulky battery pack that I keep in reserve with use of my CPAP mask when I go camping. The vacuum worked well for the most part, and I found that the design, one that I duplicated from the vacuum that Bob Kloss had been using for years, worked well and most importantly did not kill any bees. You know, there's something oddly cathartic about sucking in the bees and ensuring that you do not leave any bees behind, and I spent probably more time than was required to wait and just get about every single bee. I waited for them to land and literally sucked some of them who were flying out of the air. As to that battery pack, the device has lost its mojo over time. I've been using it since November 2010. The device is a Duracell Power Pack 600, and I think I'm going to finally have to replace it. Maybe I can actually replace the battery inside. Hmm, going to have to look that up. What would happen, because the battery was worn, the vacuum would spin up and then it slow down, and spin up and spin down, and I found the suction pattern did the same thing. And at some point, the homeowner helped me out by allowing me to switch to extension cord, and then I was off to the races. I actually plan to do some camping coming up, so I suppose I have to put a new battery pack in that thing, or find another one. Anyway, I've had the vacuum in the garage for two or three seasons, and never, ever found an opportunity to use it, and I finally found a situation where I could put it to use and test it. The biggest thing I wanted to know is when you turn the buckets around, whether or not it would kill any bees, have too much suction, all that. Nope, worked perfectly. I'll share one last aside, though, that I did learn about using the vacuum. The lid clamp sucks. <laughs> At one point, I pulled on the hose, I knocked it over, the top flopped off, and released a lot of the bees. The bucket top vacuum clamp simply doesn't work, and I ended up taking a pause, getting some duct tape, which I happen to have on hand, and secure the lid for the operation. It's always good to be prepared. If you always had a notion to see and make one of these vacuums, look in the show notes. I'll have a link to a guide about that, and the original article was published in Beak Culture, and I'll have a link to the, to the article number and date on that. Roundtable number five, I call this one Gotta Go to Mow. It's about a pushreel lawnmower. With my new bee yard, it has a different layout, and it's not as conducive to mow with a riding mower. In the former yard, we had... It was long, and I could run the mower between the hives that were spaced out. This one is pretty much a square, and there's not a lot of room to navigate to turn around and ride through with the riding mower. This particular yard would really lend itself well to a power mower, push mower, but we don't have one. In talking to a friend who has a small yard, they bought one of these push mowers, and my son has one of these push mowers. You know, the old-fashioned kind that you push in the real spins and chops the grass. So we decided maybe we would try one of those. When we looked, we were looking at a brand that was highly recommended, but unfortunately at the time could not get it sorted out because, well, 
that was on back order. It's called the Gardenia, G-A-R-D-E-N-A mower. Uh, there's a bunch of different push mower kinds from them on Amazon if you look. But ultimately, we settled on the American Lawn Mower Company 1204 14-inch four-blade push reel lawn mower. It says it's red, but it's more orange. I'm looking at the listing that we purchased from Amazon at $80. So this is something for new beekeepers. A lot of new beekeepers try to understand, well, what am I going to do when someone's going to mow? Especially if you use a, a lawn service. Uh, one of the recommendations you can make in getting started to beekeeping is buy one of these. Use it to mow your grass in and around your hives to a point where the buffer is available to let your lawnmower, meaning the person you hire to mow your grass, stay away from the hives at any reasonable distance. As for you, the beekeeper, I would still wear a, bear, a bee suit, and I do, but honestly, I've been mowing my grass with this thing without a bee suit, just zipping in between. Every once in a while, bees coming and going to the front of the hive bump into me, and yes, I've been stung once or twice, but for the most part, this thing does not cause any issues whatsoever. You could zip and zoom and slide and do whatever you want with this thing around the hives, and the bees just don't care, other than blocking their egress into the hives, ingress, egress. In using this device, um, right out of the box, just put it all together, a couple clamps, a couple screws, and push it around. One of the things with the yard that I had is it was loaded with small little sticks, twigs, poison ivy, things like that. We cut and ground the grass by digging it up, but there were all these little shoots and roots sticking up. The smallest, smaller than a pencil stick, will stop this thing dead. It works on the smallest tolerances to cut the grass. The blade spins against this sharp sickle bar, and the tolerance is the thinness of a piece of paper. So the first time you go through, every single little twig, and I mean little twig, it, it jams the mower, and ugh, it stops, and you got to back it up and pull that little thing out. So do yourself a favor, if you do buy one of these, scrupulously go through your entire area that you're going to mow and pick up every little stick and twig. Now, I live in the woods, where I have the bees are in the woods, and every time I do this, there's sticks and twigs all over, and I inevitably miss some, and I'll be zipping along and catch one of those, and the thing will stall, and I'll cuss at it. And... But, you know, for the most part, it works. Now, I did a little patch of my grass, which is probably 20 by 20 and 15 minutes. Get yourself a little exercise zipping back and forth, and, you know, works pretty well. I think that I'm so satisfied with the one that I have that I'm not going to buy a push mower, electric or gas. I think I could stay with this. Now, when the leaves start to fall, I suppose I'm going to have to rake the grass before I do it that way, but who knows? Uh, we'll see as the summer progresses. But if you're one of those people that's nervous about using a mower next to your hives, you could zip right past these the bees and they, they could care less. And it might be a good way for you to go. So the American Lawn Mower Company, 1204 14-inch blade, it's a push-reel lawn mower. 
It's about 80 bucks on Amazon right now. And one of the things that I would say is I would like to have a little wider reel. I don't know if they make them that way. Uh, 16, 18 inch would be great because you do have to make a lot of passes on it. But when I cut the grass, it looks as good as if I had cut it with a regular machine. Gotta go to mow. It's rained so much this year. <laughs> I've had to mow the grass like, you know, every every couple days. It's crazy. And that thing works pretty well for me. And I enjoy the little exercise. It's cathartic. Topic number one, homemade sunscreen. It's time. I finally did it. I was waiting for summer to come, and we're starting to get some of those stronger UV days here. And I thought, no better time to pull out the recipe I found for sunscreen. The appeal for me is that we're using our cappings wax that we melted last year as part of this cosmetic. Let me just quick run through the recipe and I'll talk a little bit about the dynamic of making the sunscreen. You could look at the recipe from two different standpoints. There's the traditional, it's this many ounces of that and this many ounces of the other thing. But specifically, grams is the better way to go, to weigh and measure. The ounce perspective of it is just a generality so you know about how much of the product you'll need. If I look at the beeswax, shea butter, coconut oil, zinc oxide, they're one and a half, one and a half, one and a half ounces of beeswax, shea butter, and coconut oil, not butter. And then it's one ounce of zinc oxide. And then to that, you can add 10 drops of essential oil to your taste. Or in my case, I like to add a milliliter to each one. There's another product that this recipe that I found didn't add, but other recipes touted, called carrot seed oil. It's a specialty product. You're going to have to order it from someplace. To that, I used another milliliter in my recipe. So if I'm to go back through the Graham recipe version of it, this is what you should follow. Get yourself a good scale. 50 grams of beeswax, 43 grams of shea butter, 41 grams of coconut oil, one milliliter of carrot seed oil. Take all of those things, put them in a pot, and heat them until they're liquid state. Pull it off of the heat and stir in 29 grams of zinc oxide. I was hesitant when I made the zinc oxide whether it would stir in. It stirs in absolutely beautifully. Then to that, Add whatever you want to use for essential oils. In my case, I used tangerine essential oil, one milliliter, and vanilla flavor oil, vanilla vanillin is what it's called. It's like an imitation flavor. If I go through the actual products, all the stuff I sourced off at Amazon, the product that I used for the shea butter is Sky Organics, 100% organic, unrefined ivory shea butter. Very nice product, easy to use. For the coconut oil, I went to Trader Joe's, organic triple filtered coconut oil. In the carrot oil, I used a brand called MMS, carrot seed essential oil. I don't remember where I ordered it, but it comes in a five liter vial and it's 
pretty expensive. So, but the key to the carrot oil is with the zinc oxide, you're only at about 20% SPF. And when you add the essential oil of carrot oil, it's supposed to bring it up thereabouts to 35, 40, some say 45. When it comes to the zinc oxide powder, I again ordered that off of the internet, Sky Organics again, zinc oxide powder. You have to make sure you buy the non-nano and uncoated version of this. It's for DIY beauties and soaps, and in this case, sunscreen. Now, this entire thing will make somewhere around 156 grams of product. And the interesting thing is, and, you know, sometimes I... You get to find out more about me that you probably don't care to know. I like Arm & Hammer deodorant. <laughs> That's the brand I use. And the Arm & Hammer uh, ones are, I guess, just like Ban or any of the other ones. When I finish with those, you could take an Arm & Hammer one and heat the fluid that's left over, the residual. And if you heat it, warm it up with a blow dryer, you could pour it into the next one and reserve the product, but it also cleans the container. So what I did was split the batch of sunscreen that I made into two old deodorant containers. They're perfect for sunscreen. And this actually was a recipe for a lotion bar, but it firms up fine that it's just like the texture of a deodorant that you could put on your skin. Now, I think you probably look weird on the beach taking something that looks like a deodorant container and rubbing it all over your head or face or whatever. But now this product is an all natural homemade sunscreen. And it's like the old fashioned stuff that we had when we were kids. When you put it on, you get that white tint to your skin, but when you rub it in, it goes off. So the interesting thing about that, and, and a lot of people say this is actually a good thing is when you see the white, if you rub it to the point where the white is off, you've evenly distributed it and you made sure that you covered your entire skin. So homemade sunscreen, it is doable. Now this product, you're supposed to store it out of the sun, you know, typical cosmetic type thing, and it'll last for six months before it starts to go bad. I plan to put a little batch of it. I made two deodorant containers worth of this product and then it had a little bit left and I'm going to take this little vial that I have it's probably about two tablespoons and put that in my vehicle how many times do you go out in your car you go somewhere and you think boy I'm going to get stuck in the sun and I need some sunscreen and you don't have any I used to keep sunscreen in my glove compartment for that purpose I'm very good about sunscreen, by the way. I had this condition when I was a kid and always put sunscreen on, and, and I'm almost to the point of neurotic about it. So it would be really nice to have that little emergency supply in a small little container inside the car. And we'll see whether or not it melts in the heat of the summer. That's one of the things. You know, if it's got coconut oil and shea butter, when they get above a certain temperature, they're going to melt for sure. But I think that'll be okay. So one of the things I wanted to try is homemade sunscreen. I am going to use this this summer, and we'll see how it works. I cannot imagine, and I'm going to say this out loud, that this product is going to be any better than the commercial stuff. 
Who knows what's in that stuff, but obviously commercial stuff works. If it's good enough, it's perfect, and I'm not getting a sunburn with it, I think I'll continue to make this. It's nice to make your own product, and the stuff feels really good when you spread it on your skin. So a recipe for homemade sunscreen that you could pour into a bar or pour into the containers like I did. And I'll have a link to the recipe in the blog on my show notes. I think as far as the episode goes, that's where I'm going to cut off the prepared stuff. I want to move to the local hive report. I have a bunch of little things to talk about. And, well, the first thing I'll say is I have something that I want to share that was recorded two Saturdays ago with Bob Kloss after working bees. And it's a little bit about what we talked about and some of what we discussed kind of meandered about in the show, but I thought there was an interesting discussion about queenlessness, conditions in the spring after swarming, and recognition of such. As to the up-to-date local hive report, I'll remind you of a word I used describing how beekeeping goes, agile. I'm up to 16 colonies in boxes, and unlike a commercial operation that talks about production colonies, meaning full-size colonies, fully drawn nest, and honey supers and such on top. Mine are in groups of various maturity. What I mean by that are some are not full-size. They are recently captured swarms. Some are splits made earlier in the year. Some are splits made in the last two weeks. Then there's the unconventional hives, the lanes, the top bar, and the warre. In some respects, this complicates my life. It makes me literally track things on a hive-by-hive basis and what my next actions are, and it personifies having to be agile and go with what I know. For the most part, and while still working a demanding full-time job, I've stayed on top of things this season. We'll say that getting those minutes back for not having to drive back and forth to work really has changed things for me because it's afforded that little extra time I need to get to those miscellaneous chores. And I've taken this tack this year that when something needs to be done and it's after work, I'm going out in the garage and I'm going to do it. When it comes to making splits, adding boxes, building frames, inserting foundation, and all the miscellaneous equipment tasks that take real time out of someone's schedule, I've been on my game. I've been able to keep pace with the growth of the hives and the next actions for any management, or at least staying pace with it. And it feels like this year has been very demanding on that front. This year's signals a bit of a change for me. I'm starting to think that all this experimenting with oddball hives, maybe it needs to lower a little bit. As much as I enjoy all of that, I am kind of taking a more honey production focus And if I'm going to do that, at some point I need to get the full-size colonies and run them so that I can produce honey. I don't know. Jerry's still out because there's the other side of me that really enjoys going through the top bar and the lay-ins and things. Watching the Waré build, I really enjoyed that this year so far. Um, I don't know. More on that, I guess, as time evolves. So coming back to the inspections. On Saturday the 5th of June, I did my my checks for the first row. Hive number two, 
one mite in the entire sample. Hive number three, three mites in the entire sample. So 1%, divide that by three. Hive number four, one mite in the entire sample. And those hives do not have mite problems. If I look at hive number, well, not number, let's go by names. The polystyrene hive and the cedar hive, I've split them. Polystyrene hive, I split that twice because it's, it would have been a supreme hive like last year, and I know how that goes. When I split them, I feel like I gave them fresh foundation and such. They've got a bit of a brood break, or at least slowed the brood down. And I think that's kept the mites at bay a little bit. One thing to report about the cedar hive is the thing is nasty. Not a happy hive. Now, I thought perhaps, and you'll hear Bob and I talk about it, that it was queenless. But as I went through it yesterday, I found the queen and she looks spectacular. And there are brood patterns in there. It's just a nasty hive. Now, when you have a hive that's on a full nectar flow and the queen is in there and she's laying and everything's good if the bees are nasty then that's the disposition of the bees so some of what you'll hear in the outro of our speculation is that maybe the hive was a little pissy because it was queenless well actually it's queen right and it seems okay or re it was rebuilding a queen this queen was long and fat and she was laying condition so, I don't know, that hive is a watch. And as beautiful as that queen looked, if she's going to have offspring that's going to be pissy, got to go. You know, it leads me to stay on the task to do some queen rearing, which I haven't gotten to. I put another honey super on top of the polystyrene hive. It's made three boxes of honey. It's heading for number four. And we'll see if we can get that harvested. There's a funny thing, adage that says, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. And well, I'm trying to break that mold this year. And when I made the split of the cedar hive, I put the... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I can't believe I actually broke the thing out. I put the flow hive back on top of it. One of the interesting things about the cedar hive is it had a top entrance and the bees were using the top entrance. And that led me to think one of the things that Stuart, the inventor of the hive, told me is you need to get the bees moving through the box. Well, in the case of the cedar hive, they were coming mostly through the top, but somewhat through the front entrance. So I put the, I put the box on there and I didn't put it on the bottom like I thought I was going to because I thought the bees would come in the entrance and walk through it. I put it on the top. And the bees are entering. Now in the back of the flow hive, there's this little piece of strip of wood that you pull off so that you can do the extraction and put the key in. Well, I've pulled that ajar a little bit and it allows the bees to come in. So they're coming through the back of the box, but they're coming in through the top and going down through the flow hive. Well, when Bob and I did the inspection, Sharon could hear us hooting and hollering. The bees are storing nectar in there. Yeah, the flow hive, it's going to work this year. I'm, I'm pretty happy to think that it might actually, I'm going to go out there with the little key and turn it and it's going to flow out.
I checked on it again yesterday, and it looks good. Bees are using it. So how about that? How about that? Okay, moving through. Um, the old medium hive on pad 5 continues to just chug along. I put a full deep and a medium over the brood nest for honey supers, and they're working their way through it. The medium, or the full deep is already fully stacked and capped. That should be fun to extract and lift and so on. Both the top bar and the lanes are doing their things. They're building population from right to left in the top bar, left to right in the lanes. When it comes to the top bar, the build that I have, the two honey supers are well underway. And I think I may have to pull them and put new ones on. One is mostly capped and the other is getting loaded. Hard to say, but I'll probably know in the next two weeks if that's the way that's going to go. The Russian hive swarm is going gangbusters. It started out as a single medium that the beekeeper gave me when he collected the swarm. To that, I added a full-size gateway, the gateway hive deep. A week or so, I put a queen excluder between the two. I was hoping by chance that the queen would be up in the deep that I want to use, which is still sitting over the medium on the bottom board. Hope you're following all that. What I want to do is see if I can free the medium up of any brood, allow it to emerge, and if the queen is up in the top, then I can pull that medium out and give it back to the beekeeper. Well, mission accomplished. I went through that box, and the queen is laying like a fool in my deep equipment. To that end, I put another deep, because that box is full from left to right, top to bottom. Yeah, floor to ceiling, <laughs> as the episode is called. So... That box is ready to become a full-size colony. I don't know if it's going to get to the point of building honey this year. They are still a little pissy. Not very happy about that. But one thing that I've noticed is as the colony's growing, they become less fussy. When we first put that box in, the bees were running like crazy all over the comb. They seem to have settled down a little. I don't know if that's my sentiment or not, but... I think at this point I've talked about eight. And there's probably about six other hives left. They're all mostly swarms and splits. One of them, there was a oops. I guess I could talk about that. The blue hive swarm. The property where it was collected had a neon blue house out in front. That's the one I discussed that came from the grapevine. I put it in a 6 over 6 frame polynukin, duh. I didn't put any frames in that top box. I just completely forgot its state when I set it out in the yard. And I had left it alone because I wanted it to settle for a few days. And it ended up being five days. And when I peeked in on it, the colony had started to draw comb from the roof. There were three or four sheets of honeycomb. And I had to come back in subsequent sessions with some wired frames, cut them out, secure them, and return them in good order. And that's a messy job. I got what I deserved after being so inattentive and not to provide them with frames in that top box. So it's, a, it's okay. Got that solved. 
They'll reconnect the comb. I gave them Kelly F foundation list frames and secured everything with wire. I bought a brushy mountain device to wire frames and I've wired a bunch of different frames, which I had never done before. I watched videos on how to do it and it really has helped. And it took this green wire that I don't know what it is. It's just in the garage and wrapped it around the frames. And eventually I just go through and snip it all off. It's going to make a mess, but if the comb is secured to the top, it'll be okay to pull it out. It's super thin. I want to talk about the three hives that I have that are out in out yards. I have two eight frames set up going on at the Deer Path Mentoring Yard and a five frame over five frame nuke at Valley Crest. The two eight frames were swarms that were captured earlier in the year on my property and they had to be moved out to a location so that they can eventually be moved back into the apiary. You know the old adage, move them three feet or three miles? They both moved into traps on the property, and as I talked about before, I tried to move them over into the apiary, but it didn't work. So I had to take them out, and I will bring them back eventually. Now, the five-frame setup at Valley Crest was a split, and I'm planning to leave it there. I brought that five-frame over five-frame and set it on the hive bench at Valley Crest with some queen cells, and I'm going to leave it there for two weeks, and hopefully it will begin its journey to a full-size colony. Now, to that end, I brought over a full deep setup. And I plan to go back there next weekend and move that into the regular-sized equipment and bring my poly stuff back home. So, yeah, there's been a lot going on since we connected, and I left a lot by the wayside here. Now, the two things you have not heard about so far are queen-rearing, and hive number two. The queen rearing stuff just simply didn't work out. I'm hoping maybe next week we'll get to some of that. I saw some really desirable comb in the polystyrene hive that I want to draw from. And I'm thinking about actually taking Thursday and Friday off this week because I have time and doing some queen rearing just to see if Bob is available. The second thing that I'll talk about is Hive on pad number two. This is that six frame polystyrene hive that just never did anything and the brood patterns were terrible. Two seasons ago and a little bit last season I had some European file brood in my apiary. And I thought I had cleaned it all up and it was one of the main reasons actually I got to cleaning all my comb. Well as I went through that hive I recently discovered that it has a little European foul brood, and that makes sense because of the spotty, crappy pattern. So the funny thing is, is it's three boxes, and one of the boxes is fresh foundation, but they haven't touched the thing. And now, don't, 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 I pulled the frame of brood out of the middle of that hive and put it in pad one. So, oh, what a dumb thing to do. But I didn't know. I didn't realize. I hadn't done a really good quality inspection of that hive. As I went through it from floor to ceiling, I pulled out one of the brood frames, which had a really spotty pattern, and I noticed there were some tan melted larvae in the bottom. And I've seen European foul brood before. This is the sign of it. 
So the other thing that I noticed is, of all the boxes where I've done a lot of comb exchange, this one didn't get a lot of it. So here's my thought. I know that the frame I pulled out of this hive was one of the new frames that I had put in earlier in the season. It had a marking 421 on the top. And the queen had laid fresh brood throughout the whole thing. When you have European fowl brood, it's typically carried in the comb from the bacteria and also the nurse bees. And they just can't shake themselves of it because it's throughout the hive. I probably made a massive, huge mistake, but hive number one has no queen and they need to make a queen. And I don't know what the quality of the brood is that I gave it, whether it has European fowl brood and whether I just contaminated completely hive number one. It's hard to say. So we'll see. But my hope is, is that that was a clean frame. It wasn't um, a European fowl brood bacteria infested comb because it was new comb earlier this year, and it'll be a watch. If I were smart, I'd probably ditch that frame, pull it out of that hive before, but it's probably too late. It's been in there a little while. As to pad number two, hive number two, it just keeps languishing along, and now I know why. It's sick. It doesn't look good. This is the hive that I will do a shook swarm on. Basically, I'm going to remove all of the old comb, except for the new ones that I put in earlier this year, which are mainly foundationless still. There's not a lot of drawn wax on them. And I'm going to force them to draw wax. And I think, ironically enough, the idle bees over in pad number one, I'm going to pull a box and do a combine. So I'm going to collapse all the bees in pad two, the sick hive, down into new fresh foundation. And I'm going to grab a full contingent of population from hive number one, which doesn't have a queen. And I'm going to do a combine. And here's the logic behind this. I'm going to get rid of all the old crappy comb that could potentially have European fowl brood bacteria in it and give them fresh foundation to work with. But I'm also going to give them half a population of clean, fresh bees from hive number one. And between the two, I'm hoping that they'll be able to overcome what's what. Now, the question lies with the queen. Is she sick or not? Because it seems to me that if the queen was given clean, fresh comb with something to work with, she might recover. And ultimately, I'm going to rear some queens, and I might just replace her if I have excess. So pad number one, pad number two, these two hives have been a wreck all season long. And I'm going to look to see if I can mitigate them in that way. At minimum, I know I'm going to destroy all the comb and get it out of my apiary. Now, one of the things that happened this week is I had an exchange with one of the beekeepers locally to us, and he's got European fowl brood going through his apiary. He sent a message asking, well, actually indicating some of the things that they've done and asking if there was anything further. And ultimately, if you have European fowl brood, not, I'm not doing a European fowl brood lesson here, but just general concepts. It's a bacteria disease. 
One, you need to make sure 100% that you do not have American Foulbrood. You need to do the rope test and or the, the kit test that you can buy. But in that case, the best way to do it is you could call a vet and do teramycin. That may solve the problem for the sick bees, but it's not going to solve the problem of the bacteria in the comb. So a shook swarm or a, a comb refresh is one of the best ways to do it. Now, one of the key things you got to keep in mind is if you have European fabric going on, do not transfer stuff between that colony, which is unbeknownst to me, the stupid thing that I did, right? You do not want to take that bacteria into another hive. You'll make it sick and you need to clean your hive tools. So I clean my hive tools after working number two with uh, isopropyl alcohol. You got to practice really good hygiene. You should be doing that anyway, right? I clean my hive tools as much as I work through every every time I'm finished. Just cleaned all my stuff with alcohol this week, actually. Um, some people clean them literally when they go from hive to hive. I don't think I've been that fussy, quite frankly. Now, some people might scream, "You're you're an idiot." Just get rid of the hive, burn the comb, blah, blah, blah. They take that extreme measure. I, I don't think so. I just... If that hive came out of winter and it's had European fowl brood and it's been sitting right there in the apiary and all the other hives you hear are thriving, there's not a panic. I don't know that I want to get to the point where I get later in the season and the nectar flow is done and the bees are not freshly being built in all the other hives and allow it to come in and rob that hive. But I'm in the nectar flow still, and I think I could take this mitigation action. I did consider, actually yesterday, moving the hive out of the apiary and putting it on another place in the property while I do this remediation. And if I don't see it recover fast enough, I might actually do that. Now, obviously, I wouldn't take it to Valley Crest or Depath or one of the other active yards. I would isolate it somewhere on the property. And if I have to cull the hive, I would do that too, because quite frankly, it's only two six-frame polys, and it's not that big of a colony, and it's not doing great. But I don't think there's anything wrong with the queen in the population. They just need to get healthy, and I'm willing to give it a try, but not be foolish about it. Yeah. Interesting little story there, isn't it? So as it comes to monitoring and treating, the first couple hives, which I've done splits, they don't show any mite loads. As to the rest of the apiary, there's two hives that I'm concerned about. They've not had any splits but they were super small populations and now they've grown to full-size colonies. And if they had mites in the small populations, by this time, they're probably loaded with mites. That's the top bar in the land's hive. I think the rest of my apiary is all swarms and such. And I might wait till later this year and then monitor them when they get a little bit bigger. But I believe proactively, I... I'm going away next weekend, and I'm going away the weekend after that, and I'm going on vacation in July, and some of my weekends are going to be occupied. I'm not sure how much time I'm going to have to spend like I have this spring in the apiary. 
And I'm positive if I check the top bar and the lands hive that they're going to be loaded with mites because they've had no intervention so far this year. I didn't do any spring treatments with them because they were really small. So I'm actually thinking I might proactively treat those two hives. The rest of the hives are either splits or swarms or whatever captured in their building. I just don't feel like they have high mite loads. I'm using my empirical knowledge of years past to say that, not monitoring. That's a stupid thing to do, but I'm willing to take my risks on that. So I'm thinking through that, right? This is my current mode of operandi right now. If anything, this is agile on display. And while I keep calling out that to emphasize the concept that I shared in a previous episode, I promise I'll stop saying that now. I, I just, you know, thought this was a really good local hive report to explain how things just change on the fly and you have to adapt. I have a decision to make, lock up another block of time. And that really was the problem. I had two or three blocks of time set aside this spring to do my monitoring and all of them got overtaken. And actually one of the things that happened is Two of those three occasions, one it rained, and two I got called for swarms. And I made the decision, go out in the yard and go through the hives and do monitoring or go pick up swarms. And, sorry, freebies one, <laughs> stupid pound rich and penny foolish or something like that, or penny foolish pound, whatever that thing is. So I have to make a decision whether I'm going to actually go actively monitor those hives or just if I can't find the time to monitor the couple full-size colonies I have left, the all-medium hive, the lay-ins hive, and the top bar hive, I might just treat them proactively with, by the way, this is another thing that I have factored into this. I have Formic Pro and it expires this year. And I don't see the harm in using it proactively for three full-size colonies that have grown all the way through that likely when I monitor them are going to have mite loads. It's, it almost feels like common sense. And sometimes we, uh, no, I'm not going to go there. Monitor and treat, folks. <laughs> Don't do as I say. Um, I, I'm just, you know, trying to figure my way through the season. The last thought I have roaming through my mind is about equipment. It's a milestone for me, but if I look at all of our colonies in progress and what they will be when they grow up, I'm going to need equipment for full-size colonies, and I'm going to be tight on equipment. I've had this large cache of boxes in my garage for years and never was able to realize enough colonies to occupy them. You know, over time, I've even given away equipment to others who were in a bind. And now, ironically, I find myself in the need of ordering some hive boxes. And this is even after buying multiple polyhive setups in the last couple of years. Now, I'm doing my best to be frugal with this, but I do plan to move towards more honey production operation. And as such, I think I need to scale back on the boutique hives, as I was talking about earlier. It becomes really complicated to catering to the oddball setups while trying to maintain a real honey production operation. This season's been like no other. The amount of forage and growth of colonies this spring has been unlike any year I've ever seen. The visuals 
weather-wise, seem to indicate that we're going to carry on. And it's a great year for expansion. While it's still spring, it feels like we're heading into an early summer. It's going to be on 90s all this week. I think it's time to focus on three things. Honey production for the hives that I've targeted for making honey. Growing my fledgling colonies to full size for overwintering. And last but not least, not losing focus on mite impacts to the colonies so that they're healthy enough to build over winter bees this summer. This means no rest to the weary. And honestly, I think I'd rather have it no other way. I know it drives Sharon crazy. I'm having a good time this 2021 season. I, I have really enjoyed some pleasant evenings, actually just sitting in a chair, listening to the buzz of the bees in the new apiary, which is really shady. I don't mean shady like crooked. I mean shady like it's under the tree canopies. That's a strange dynamic for me. The other one was really out at the edge of the field and got quite a bit of sun. I find myself when I'm pulling a frame and trying to see if there's brood in all stages and such, walking around inside the yard looking for some dappled sun coming through so I can get some sun to shine on the frame. That's how shady the new apiary is. Now, one of the pleasant side effects, though, is that the canopy of leaves over top of all the hives, when you stand in the driveway and you watch the bees leave, they're flying out up through the leaves and the trees. It's really kind of a cool effect, a dark shade tree, and you see the, the light shining off the bees. It's really neat to watch. But we've lined a couple chairs up around, along the outside of the apiary, and you could sit in there, and the sound of the bees, the buzz, under the canopy of the trees echoes through that area, and it's really, really cool. Spent a lot of nights sitting out there with a cold glass of iced tea, just listening and watching the bees come and go. Very enjoyable. I think that's a good place to leave this. Let me head to closing comments, and then I'll play that little recording I made of Bob and I chatting for the outro. I think given I have the recording coming at the end of the show, I'll leave it here, but I wanted to just uh, mention that what an interesting dynamic it's been lately that the COVID situation has changed, just turned 180 degrees. We've been locked and sequestered in our homes for months and months and months and months, and now all of a sudden, after the vaccines came through, I think uh, there's this dynamic in New Jersey, New York, whatever, where we were pummeled so badly in the beginning that a lot of people actually had COVID, and then people from that perspective, went and got their vaccines. So we have some of the highest vaccine take rates. And now New Jersey's open. Uh, you can go pretty much anywhere, and it's rare to see someone wearing a mask. I know there were some areas that didn't believe in masks in the first place, but it's kind of liberating to be able to go outside, walk around, go shopping, do whatever, walk through a Walmart and not have to wear a mask. Uh, it's going to make for an enjoyable summer. I wanted to uh, just reflect that in the podcast. I hope everybody's doing well where, where you are, your family's doing well, and, you know, just say in general, it's nice. Uh, we've been getting coached at work that we're going to go back in September time frame back into the office. We're not sure 100% what that means. Sounds like we're going to go back part-time, and I guess this working from home thing blessing and a curse, all good things must end. Uh, 
we're going to go back to the grind, as it may be. Uh, but it's been an enjoyable beekeeping season. Wanted to mention one more time that you can go to store.bkcorner.org and go to our merchandise store. Uh, we ordered a bunch of shirts just to be able to have a different selection. And, you know, again, I'll remind everybody, it seems like the shirts run small, at least it did for me. So I ordered a size up and I really uh, thought what came fit me better. One little oops on the order. They sent us some commando shirt instead of one of the ones we ordered. But uh, I was really happy with the, the way the shirts got printed and the designs came out. I'm kind of violating terms. You know, there's this funny thing in the racing community where if you make shirts for your race team, the driver does not wear their own shirt. They wear everybody else's shirt, but it's considered uh, bad luck, karma, whatever, to wear your own shirt. But I actually went out in public the other day wearing a Beekeeper's Corner shirt. I thought it was kind of cool. I, I don't know. Just geeked out on it. So store.bkcorner.org. If you didn't hear, we are selling some t-shirts. Not so much for a profit, but just because it was time after a decade to <laughs> you know, be able to have a t-shirt with the logo on it. Um, I will ask, though, and take a moment to say thanks to those who make donations. Uh, there's a donation button on the homepage of the website. Don't talk about it at all. But every once in a while I get a donation and I do appreciate those and anything that anyone donates goes back into the production of the show, which I pay for out of my pocket. I don't have ads or anything like that. So if you do donate, I wanted to say thank you to you. And, you know, we'll ask this one thing. If you like the show, um, if you don't like the show, that's okay. I just, it helps sometimes if you give it a review or at least give it a a like in your podcast app uh, that helps to let people know that people are enjoying the show and it and it raises the show in the standings whether it's apple music google play spotify whichever podcast app you work the reviews are factored into how high the show goes and you know it's nice to let people know that when they search for a beekeeping show this one's out there so if you could do a review just a Thank you for that. That's all. I'm looking forward to the rest of the summer. It's going to be an interesting summer. I'm going to continue to keep my foot on the gas and uh, try to build out, I think, the biggest ambitious uh, amount of colonies that I've ever had. Uh, there's a backstory to that, but I'll, I'll leave that for some other time. And um, Yeah. Having a lot of fun. As you could tell, I've said that several times on this, and I and I do mean it. Hope you are too. Hope you're all having a good beekeeping season. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well. Closing out the episode here is just a little aside, a little chit chat with Bob Kloss and I after working bees in the apiary. Just something added on. I thought there was little nuggets of wisdom in here that, I don't know, just wanted to share. So enjoy this as an outro. So I wanted, I wanted to, uh, let's, let's talk about how nasty the hives were today. Yeah. And 
that I've heard different people tell me that their hives are nasty this year. And what did we discover? Which which hives were nasty? What, the uh, packages that came up from the south? No, they're all queenless. Oh, Ours. Oh, the queenless. We just oh, went yeah. through my yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and that, that you know, right? And that's like we were t- saying today to people. You listen first. Yeah. You watch the behavior, and that tells you right up front what you should be looking for. It doesn't guarantee you're gonna what you're going to find, but it gives you that hint, right? Well, so you and I went through pad one, no queen, and we heard the roar. Yep. And they were not happy. Yep. But they weren't nasty. They weren't in the air after us. Right. Pad four, that hive was really nasty today. Yep. And I've been in that hive multiple times this season and never had a problem with it. Yeah. And today, we we went through the, to the bottom and paid the price for it. I got stung five times on the wrist. I probably did, too. Same spot, twice on the back and whatever. Yeah. It was just vicious, that hive. Yeah. And what did we find? Queen cells all the way through. Capped. Speaking of, she followed you down. She's still smelling it. Yeah. But, but no queen. There's no evidence of a queen. There was no brood. Capped brood, right? And on Monday, I found queen cells through throughout that hive and moved them into a queen castle. Do you believe this? It's going to come right from my face and I'm going to kill it. <laughs> Can't believe it followed us all the way down here. Because we're still scented, you know, that's the problem. We yeah. smoked, but we're still scented. I know. But it just goes to show, folks, that if you if you have a hive that's queenless, it's going to be nasty. And the other thing that we saw, just for the record, all of the hives that were queenless were backfilling everything with nectar. Yes. They were making nectar like crazy. They have no brood to feed. They have no brood to feed. That's another, you know. And we saw it in the hives at the mentoring yard today, and yeah. we saw it in my hives all over the place. They're yeah. making... Mucho honey. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So here's, so, what, here's what I was going to say, too, is, you know, we talk about queenlessness, right, at this time of year when they're doing their thing, trying to swarm. But then we have to remember, and a lot of people forget this, if they don't swarm, a lot of times they're going to supersede the queen. That's their next step. Yeah. And that's why when you get to, like, June, beginning of July, you go in and you go, I'm queenless, right? And it's because they su- they want to supersede the queen, and uh, I g- I get those calls all the time from people, and I say just wait a week, just wait a week, and they'll take care of it. Yeah, and we go in and. But and in that time when they're queenless, they're they're going to be unhappy. Yep. So we heard the roar, we heard the sound, mm-hmm. and you know somewhat it we smoke them, and that, that, the, you get that yeah. sound, and yeah. they never stop. No. They keep that roar. Now, that hive, one of the things I was telling you is that hive always enters on the top. Yes. And one of the problems I have with that hive is every time I take the top box off, there's always tons of bees in the air. Mm-hmm. And they're never happy because you took away their entrance. Yeah. Yes. So it really annoys me when hives establish the top entrance. Because yeah. they're hard to work. Right. And, and once they're in the air, it's all downhill from there. Then we were looking at the hive on pad four, which has a top entrance. Mm-hmm. And what were you saying to me? They were so crowded that they're falling in clumps yeah. down to the bottom. So I said to you, the clump would fall down. Then they would stand on the precipice of the bottom board, and they would walk in the okay. hive. Yeah. 
So now they're using both entrances, they are, yeah. but they're still clumping up so and much at the top down. and falling down. That was amazing to see that. Yeah, that hive just, it, it it's bees floor to ceiling. It's yeah. crazy. So yeah, it's been a it's been a really weird year. We were trying to do queen rearing, we couldn't find any open brood in any of those colonies. Yeah. The other thing is like because they're all swarmy. Do we need more go. queens? Well, that was what I said to you earlier this week. I don't know if I want to rear queens because I got queens coming out of my or we're going to have enough to to, to yeah. fill in where we need them. Well, so we we could find queen cells. Of queens that we want mm -hmm. instead of queens that they made for us. Yep. That's really the only distinguish. So that's what I did. But that number one hive, it mm -hmm. doesn't have any queen cells. Okay. And we were trying to find open brood to put in it. We couldn't find any. So I could use a queen cell for that. So I went into my overwintered the nuke from the uh, valley crest. It didn't mm -hmm. get treated and it survived the winter. I put her in a nuke and uh, she built it up to five real fast, so I put another five on it, and I kind of neglected it for a week. Well, I went in there, and it was floated with bees, and I found queen cells. So I took two of those queen cells, and they're in the queen castle up at oh, yeah. Deer Pass. Well, that's a that's a good queen. Yeah. You know that she's she's good, and she overwintered without any treatment. So I figured, hey, those are queen cells you want to keep, right? Yeah. Why not? And then right. the, the two other ones that are up there are the ones that the guy got from the cutout. Now, I don't know how long that cutout was there, but they, they might be good queens. They might not. But I'm, I'm with you now. At this point, if I get, I, if I see a, a capped queen cell from a good hive, a good queen, I'm going to keep it. Well, so let's talk about the 10-frame the polyon 3. Mm -hmm. That hive was exploded today, right? And the thing that I showed you, is on Monday, today is Saturday, on Monday, I pulled all the bees out and put them in their own box. Right. I pulled six frames out of the bottom deep and five frames out of the top deep, and I gave them foundation. You saw. Yeah. It's all drawn. It's drawn. It's drawn. They have stuff in it already. <laughs> Amazing. I don't think I've ever seen them build that fast. Yeah. Four days. They built... 11 frames. That's really incredible, actually. I've never, I've that's never, on, that's astonishing I've ever, to me. I don't me. think I've ever seen that. Either. Yeah. And all those deep frames you put in, they all got drawn. Yeah. Or at least, you know, three quarters of the way. Drawn. Well, and the that's other thing still... that I did was, so that that had two deeps and two mediums, I put six new frames in the bottom box, foundation, mm -hmm. five new frames in the second deep, and... I took the top honey super and I took half the frames out and I put them in a, in a medium on top and I replaced them with foundation. So oh, mm -hmm. I took 10 frames of foundation and I split them between. <clears throat> they drew them all. Yeah. They're drawn, right? You saw it. I got to go put honey boxes on that hive because it's got, it, every frame is drawn in full from all 40. You know, we talk, all the, we talk all the time about working with the bees. Yeah. This is when they want to draw. So this if is you, it. If you need comb, now is the time, right? Yeah. You, and you, you try to do it a month from now, and guess what? You're going to struggle. I don't care how much you feed them, right? Work with the bees. The bees, are, they're dying to make it at this time. Well, the, the split that I made, the 11 frames, mm -hmm. I showed you, I put it in a full deep. 
and I put foundation next to them. Yeah. That one, complete opposite. They didn't yeah. touch the foundation. That's right. They just stayed right. Nothing. They stayed right in the middle. Uh, we took that box and we moved it to the eight-frame poly. Right. And I think there'll be a little more temperature in there. They'll yeah. be able to get it warmer. And they have, we saw frames of capped brood, so they're about to have a population explosion of new bees. Yeah. So I think in a week or so, they'll catch up. Yeah. And the frame has how many queen cells? Because I didn't give them queen cells. Yeah. When I made the split, they didn't have queen cells, but we saw six, eight. Something like that, yeah. To your point, I probably should have killed a bunch of them, but yeah. I'll wait till I see some queen cells emerged, yeah. and then maybe I'll go call the other ones. Mm -hmm. But, and that, that is the complete definition of a supreme colony. And, you know, you and I talked about it. The best thing to do with that hive is to split it. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm literally going to split that 10-frame poly one more time. And, and the, the thing really to do would be a walk-away split so that they have a broodless period. Yeah. It really, you know, it is. Even though it's going to take, like I said, seven weeks until you have new brood. But you know what? That's your brood break. That's your mite control. I, I need to do that tomorrow because if I don't split that hive, it's going to start. No, that was funny. We didn't see any queen cells in there. No. So even, that's right. We didn't. We did not. And they don't have much brood to build queen because everywhere the queen would have laid. The other thing that's nice about splitting that now is the queen more than likely is going to be built, uh, born after the solstice. Yeah. Right? So right. you're going to have a young queen. Going into next so year. So she's going to be, she's not going to stop laying because she's new. So she's just going to come out and go gun gangbusters. The bad news is I have a crate of 100 frames unassembled over there. No, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for bringing me the, uh, yeah. you brought me a frame, Jake, because I don't have one. Well, we'll see. If not, I'll build one. I mean, it works well enough. I've used it. Yeah. I'm going to... You might need something to hold them a little tighter. I'm going to use my air nailer. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to nail. I'm, yeah. I'm going to do that. You, you might want to put it... Instead of... I just have that little elastic band yeah. on there. You might want to put, like, one of your straps and okay. pull it tight. Yeah, I'll figure it you out. Know, to make it a little bit tighter. Because for a while, I think the, uh, the boards that hold them this way were a little warped. But oh, I looked okay. at them now, and they look pretty straight Yeah, because they've been like that for a while. Well, so I'm going to literally tomorrow morning get into, because I've used, I have no more frames, literally. Know. You know what? How many boxes you saw? I think I had 12 boxes of, of frames, and I've used them all. It's nice as you got all this new fresh foundation yeah. now, which I'm almost getting to the end where I got to order foundation. I had a stack that was like 12 inches high, and I think it's down to like three and a half. So hopefully I have enough foundation to do what I need. Yeah. I'm glad I've ordered surplus. So the only thing left is I've done no mite management, right? Because yeah. you can't keep every day instead of um, hiving swarms. Mites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I got the one yesterday we got called for. Um, Tell me, how did that work? Did, uh, he must have called me and you. He called me. Yeah. And so this is what I was joking about. I left you a message on your machine, like you're... So the guy's in Ringo's. Right, he's right around. He's, he's like a mile and a half, through two miles from me. He calls me first. Oh, okay. Right? Uh-huh. And I'm working, I'm on a work call. 
and the call came through. And I heard the call, and I waited for a second. And then I took my phone out, and I listened to the voicemail. It was five minutes, tops. So I called upstairs to Sharon, because I was on a call, and said, can you call this phone number back and tell them I'll come get this for him? So he called the guy and said, oh, I spoke to Bob Kloss. He's coming to get it. <laughs> wow. Okay. So it was that, that fast. That fast. So I called you and said, what the what hell are you, are you doing? doing? You're <laughs> in my turf. In my turf. <laughs> and actually, I was glad you called me because, you know, I didn't want to wait until 6 o'clock. I was joking, but I got in the car because yeah. my call got over. Yeah. And I got in the car and I drove around Ringo's because I thought I knew where the barn, I saw the barn in the background. Uh-huh. And I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And then you called me on the phone and told me you were going somewhere else. And I was glad you did because I was going to go there after the 4-H. Well, the 4-H meeting, I was there till 6 o'clock. Yeah. And I, it would have been, you know, nighttime. And, and again, my concern is they could be gone. So go get them while they're there. Yeah, so I, I drove back home and picked up the swarm box mm-hmm. I had prepped. And I went back and put them in the box. And there were 8 billion bees flying around. So I said to him, because I'm only three minutes away, I'm just going to leave it here. They'll all settle in the box. I'll come back at dusk. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. So when I went back, there were still probably 1,000 bees flying around. It was crazy. So I waited and vacuumed them off. I got to use my vacuum for the first time. Worked fine. Didn't kill any bees. I used my little battery for a while. Mm -hmm. But it ran out at the end. So he brought me an extension cord and... That's what I was going to do. My when I, he described it to me, I figured I'd go over there and I just vacuum him off yeah. and be done with it. So that was a good move. When I heard when you said you were going to vacuum. Well, off. what I noticed is it was on a grapevine, and it's an old grapevine that they were going to take off, uh-huh. and the grapevine pole was leaning at like a forty degree angle, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. So I set the hive under the base of the grapevine, and I grabbed the grapevine and I shook it, and they oh. all fell right into the hive. Nice. Queen and all. Okay, so they weren't on the on like a post. Right. That's good. Well, they were kind of on the post, but they were on the lee side of it, and I was able to shake them off. Yeah. So. Oh, good. I'm glad you got them. Yep. And they filled the six frame. Perfect. Two deep poly. That's a good they size. Were a good size swarm. Good size. The question is, where did they come from? Do they have any Russian genetics? That's, that's the question. Are they Russians or, well... Uh, if they are, you know, you, you never know. Who are they going to make? Look at this young bee that was here. See it? It's all downy and mm-hmm. cream color, brand new. Yep. How'd it get here? I, it was on the... Um, down with us. I think it was on my veil. Now it's going to be on the cat who's laying on my veil. See the cat over here on my veil? Decided that was a great place to be. Wait till he gets stunk. <laughs> He's all nestled in. He did the little clawy thing and mm-hmm. sat right down there. Happy cat. Happy cat. Tiger to be cat. Yep. So I'm going to get going. All right. Do my uh, villages in partnership. Good luck with your water walk. Thanks. Your you. water hike. <laughs> all right. Anyway, good day, huh? Yep. Thanks. Thanks yep. for coming over. Yeah. Talk to you. All right, see ya. Guess who followed us? <laughs> he went that way. Go get him.
We came down here to get away from you. What are you doing? Get lost. <laughs>